everybody. Uh, this is Jim. Hey, and this is Mike. And we have another show for you. We're on show number 15. And today we're going to, what are we going to talk about, Mike? We're going to talk about vinyl, the resurgence of vinyl, and everything about vinyl records. Yes, we're talking records. Not Tupperware. <laughs> that is correct, right? <laughs> that is correct. It's interesting, Jim, uh, vinyl, uh, what it was back then for so many years, I think it held the most decades, yeah. you know, for recorded music. It was mostly, if you look back in the history of recorded music, mm -hmm. mostly uh, on vinyl. Since record players, like the old Victrolas. Right, right. I have, a, Vic, sort of I have a Victrola, 78 okay. RPMs, and it's from 1905, maybe 1908. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've got something right in front of me here. It says that uh, Thomas Edison invented the phonograph. Before that, it was a cylinder. Uh -huh. So he had a cylinder even before vinyl with grooves on it, and that oh, was yeah. that was back yeah. in 1877. That was like a, that was a metal cylinder. Yeah, metal cylinder, with little bumps, the bumps, and it. then later he put the grooves on it, and uh -huh. then it went to a flat disc oh. from there. Okay. So uh, Jim, do you happen to know the first recorded song ever? First ever recorded song. It I'm thinking of Robert Johnson, but I'm sure. No, no, it was Thomas Edison testing okay. his phonograph. Well, I, yeah, okay. yeah, that's what I'm saying. He recorded, he recorded himself singing "Mary well, Had a Little oh, Lamb." Okay, yeah, "Mary Had a Little Lamb." I thought that was interesting. So, Jim, as we look at vinyl, uh, we're looking at all from back with Thomas Edison to what is today. We're looking at all the different um, methods the different um, ways that music is recorded. And, you know, we go from vinyl, then it was reel to reel. Mm -hmm. When I was living in Allentown, there was a friend and he would put on his reel to reel music yeah. while we were there. This is the mid 80s. I had a, a reel to reel. You did? I didn't know that. Well, it didn't. I It was a recorder. Okay. And I remember I had this really nice acoustic guitar. Eventually you get rid of stuff and I don't know what happened to it. But the, the sound... Now, as far as as far as the tapes go, it was wide and it had a greater range. You could really hold a lot with it. Yeah. Now, another advantage of reel to reel was uh, you could put it on at a party, and I don't know, it would go hours, just hours yeah. and hours, okay. and just keep going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, of course, uh, the downside with reel to reel is you can't just carry it easily. You know, you'd have to pack it up. And... See, I don't remember reel to reel. Yeah. I don't know. Was that something you could you could buy? Well, it was more for professionals, and it didn't make. Uh, commercial sense it wasn't it wasn't out there or would you record your albums on the real or i think you would record things yeah, yeah okay you know, yeah but back to production of music uh after that uh the eight track came and you and i remember mm -hmm. eight tracks yes. my first sound system in my home as a, a tween you know we didn't call yeah. ourselves tweens back yeah. then but as a as a preteen, uh was an eight track and it was an eight track recorder i think you had one yeah i had well i had a stereo that's what we called them back then, stereo. Yeah, the home system. I say stereo. I have friends who make fun of me. Stereo. Stereo. Stereo, stereo. Yeah. 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 Tomato, tomato. It had a built-in 8-track. Yeah. And the 8-track, I think Mike and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, maybe, mm -hmm. with that it had actually four tracks, you know, four buttons. Mm-hmm. It would switch from, it would have maybe two songs, three songs right. on each track. And when you're producing the album, if it's going to be out in a track, you either have to manage your time per song or mm -hmm. you're going to get that clunk, right? Yeah, I don't know how many um, how many minutes were on each track. But the song volume would go down. You'd hear it yeah. go down. It would, it would oh, fade. Oh, it would start into the next. But it would go down, then yeah. it would go, and then back up again. Yeah. So right in yeah. the middle of the song, you have the song stopping, and yeah. you know, and then it goes, it goes again. I mean, maybe in the car, 
Mike here had a um, a Rambler, '65 Rambler, which Classic. had an eight track, mm -hmm. and we're talking. Um, I listened to Blondie and Supertramp over and 80s? over again. Uh, that was the end 80s? of the '80s. Okay, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it happened to have an eight track in it. Yeah. Moving on from that, yeah. uh, eight tracks. I remember as as a preteen, my uncle saying, "You don't want to buy the eight track player. Cassettes are the latest thing." Yeah. But I already had a couple. I already had a couple eight tracks. Mm -hmm. You know, already. Yeah. So, already yeah I'm already it. in. You know. Yeah. So then cassettes came on. Of course, the advantage of cassettes, you've got no, you know, right in the middle of your songs. Right? Yeah. And uh, what else is? Why else would? How, what's the advantage of cassettes? Yeah, they're smaller. Yeah, yeah they're, they're even smaller. You can put it in your pocket. You know, you get an 8-track in your pocket, and people are going to wonder, you know, what are you, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you can fit the cassettes. They're smaller, and it's just it's better for uh, your sound system in your car. Yeah, and they had um, portable 8-track players. Mm -hmm. uh, they had, uh, I believe, a handle on the top. Yeah. You could carry them around. Mm -hmm. So when the uh, cassette came out, you had the Sony Walkman. Now, I have a Sony Walkman. Uh, from and I can tell you it's from 1991 because mm -hmm. my my wife who was my girlfriend at the time that was the first thing she bought me for Christmas and I still have it wow but I I don't really have any cassettes I used to listen to the radio on it if I could mm -hmm. tune in a radio station but, yeah yeah <laughs> so that was smaller and that was you could actually yeah. carry it around clip it uh, yeah has a clip on yeah it. you can clip right it to your to your belt or your, to your pants yeah. or something you know before yoga pants you know there was actually some yeah. substance to your pants and you, you now know, even you with like... going into vinyl uh mm -hmm. there were portable record players but they weren't sensible <laughs> you wouldn't um carry them around with you when you went on a walk or no you take it to a friend's house right yeah but they mm -hmm. did have a portable uh record player which they still they started making again mm -hmm. of course well my first little record player uh, was was yeah, you had yeah. a hand you close the lid and you carried around with a handle. It actually had yeah, a handle. There was on a clip it. Yeah. on it. Yeah, it. yeah. Mm -hmm. Correct. So cassettes really lasted long and cassettes you could uh you could do different things with them. You didn't have to be so careful, like don't scratch that record, you know? Yeah. You could you could be a little bit more abusive with them. I remember then digital. You're going from analog to digital. Mm -hmm. The digital age. And some of us remember what how blown away we were to hear that the silence was silence no pops no click yeah no yeah as the as if you listen if you turn your vinyl up really loud you yeah. can hear a little bit and that's the friction of the needle going against the vinyl but with cds it's light beam and it's there's no hiss or pops or yeah clicks. i remember it the brilliance of yeah, the sound just just sounding so good uh, i think my first D, uh, my first cd was the style council Mine was um, U2, Joshua yeah. Tree. Oh, wow. I bet it sounded good. Yeah. yeah. And I just, I remember that was a great time to purchase my first CD player. And mm -hmm. and I don't know what CDs after that I bought, but I know that was the first one to hear hear it clear. Yeah. And it wasn't too long after um, that album came out. So it wasn't like I had an old Beatles album that was beat up, mm -hmm. and, but it still sounded a lot better. Now yeah, I, yeah. I've changed my mind over time, as some people have, mm -hmm. because the the new vinyl, the remastered, the yeah. remaster, yeah, uh, I actually think it does sound. You get more ambiances uh, on the vinyl, a wider range, CD. yeah, and yeah. and even more so, uh, moving into uh, digital music that's not on the CD, but actually digital within flash drives, USBs yeah. on your computer. Uh, the compression. Yeah, this is something, I was going to say that. It's yeah. more compressed. Right. 
Right. MP3 actually is a, is one, I think, that is yeah. more compressed. And so only if you're listening really closely can you hear that you are not hearing that full range of really low, yeah. super low, and the really high crisps. It's mm -hmm. compressed, and you're not hearing as many frequencies. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if we were on an album, we'd sound a lot better, you know. <laughs> so take this and put yeah. it to vinyl. Press us. Yeah, press us on an album. Yeah. And you won't, will not believe the sound of my voice. Listen to the sound of my voice. That is brilliant. Yeah, it is brilliant. It sounds really, it sounds yeah. really good. And press was a word. That's what they would do. They would press out the albums. Yeah. How they do it, how they get all that music and those little grooves. Yeah. God, I don't know. It's amazing. There are still albums that are compressed more than others. Mm -hmm. I'm in a couple uh, vinyl album groups on Facebook, and someone had, uh, I forget what album it was, but they had two copies, and they noticed the one copy the, where the space was, the, uh, where the grooves weren't towards mm -hmm. the label. Yeah, in the inside. was wider than the other one. Okay. So there, there was some compression. Yeah. And who knows why, because it was the same album yeah that shouldn't be that's that's really interesting yeah. so it went longer unless it was a mistake mm -hmm. so uh from cds we have a gradual i don't know how many years ago but it was gradual cd sales going down because you could get your music streamed yes. and, and and if not just streamed uh sharing it you mm -hmm. know uh you you get a a CD and you put it to digital, you put it on a USB drive, you, you, you put it to another CD and you just start moving music and yeah. CD sales went down. And with the iPod, I bought an right. iPod. I still have my same iPod. It's yeah. an iPod classic. I want to say it's 120 gigabyte. It's well used. I'll never fill it. And I must have gotten that like a good 15 years ago. Wow. Still works. No moving parts. I've got 7,500 songs on there. Mm -hmm. You know, over, over time, some things do come back. They come back in style, whether right. it's clothing, you know, even different, even a food product may, may go away for a while mm -hmm. and come back sort of uh, to get that retro yeah. feel. So now, Jim, today, every day, I do not daily listen to records, eight tracks, cassettes or CDs. I'm listening to Apple Music. I, yeah. I, it's on my phone. The phone's in my hand. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, I, I got, you know, the uh, Bluetooth speakers. And so yeah. just able to search the whole world. Well, almost, right? There's some special mm -hmm. stuff you can't get on yeah. Apple Music. But right there it is in my hand, in whatever room I want, in my car, plug it in. I'm still plugging in. I don't have Bluetooth in my, my old truck. Yeah. But, <laughs> but it's, it's there and it's great quality and you don't have to carry anything. No, because yeah. you're already carrying your phone. Yeah, so. it's already with you. I still make it a point to, every Friday I call it my vinyl chill, or my Friday chill. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's um, streaming Apple Music. Mostly it's uh, vinyl albums. You go old school. You get the... Yeah. And I don't listen with headphones. I, you know, where we're recording the podcast right now, my stereo is behind me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have these nice tall speakers and i'll lay here on the futon put a light on like one little light mm -hmm. you're with your favorite just, beverage yeah yeah and uh just take in the music right and it's a good way to distress if mm -hmm. you have a lot of stress just to right if you have that opportunity mm -hmm. that you have a what's called a music room which mm -hmm. a lot of people are doing now yeah uh, going back to the you know what people did in the 60s 70s maybe even early, they had a room where they listen to the radio or music. And it's going to sound weird, but the album is playing for you. 
I mean, it's yeah. moving. You know, there's moving parts. It's playing for you. It's not just in your phone. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, the thing is, it's it's doing its thing for you. Yeah, yeah. and I've found with um, some some older albums, if they weren't remastered on Apple Music, uh, it's hard to describe. But I'm sure people know what I'm talking about. You can you can hear the streaming. You can hear it's it's there's albums on there that do sound pretty good or mm -hmm. the newer ones because mm -hmm. they're already using uh the, highest, the latest technology the highest technology yeah but the older albums that haven't been remastered uh when they went to i think uh, itunes uses mp4s mm -hmm. which is similar mp3 i'm not sure of the difference that would um, be an upgrade mm -hmm. but you're still taking um an older version an older recording and trying to make it sound make it sound good yeah. and it's still yeah it just mm -hmm. doesn't or it's really low too I right found that. and i think that different people have different hearing abilities yeah. some people can hear more hear certain frequencies and be more discerning and yeah. say that's just not perfect and i'm yeah. half deaf so oh. <laughs> don't listen to anything i'm telling you right now yeah. So, Jim, what's, what, I mean, we're going to get to this later, but, you know, some of the advantages of vinyl, let, we can get to that later, but uh, I, I just want to mention one. One is having it in your hands and looking at the pictures. Yeah. Reading all the credits, reading who engineered it. The liner it. notes. Yeah. When, I, when I'm streaming, I don't get any of that. I don't get the yeah. pictures. I don't get, I don't get who was sitting in, what musician. Oh, this guy played drums on this third and sixth track. Wow. Well, sometimes uh, before I got Apple Music, I would, I would download... Um, an album mm -hmm. that you would pay for and a lot of times it had a booklet with it but you you would have to print it out or look at it on your computer mm -hmm. as you get older looking at the cd booklets you know this print is so small right right you know but vinyl uh i think for me and probably mike uh it just brings back a lot of good memories of bringing home an album putting it on the turntable laying on your bed or whatever and and reading reading the lyrics or while you're singing listening. along well if it was a new album you wouldn't know uh yeah. the word, but no, you have to read lyrics yeah <laughs> or even read the the thank yous or the there might be a little um information about how they mm -hmm. recorded the album this sounds trite but yeah. it, but it is related to what the album means to you yes yeah can you remember your first vinyl purchases, maybe one or two, your first vinyl purchases that you brought home. Do you remember any? Oh, I remember the first one. Okay. Your first love. Yeah. I don't know <laughs> if I want to tell anyone. I'm a little embarrassed. No, I think this is the time, Jim. So it was Saturday Night Fever, <laughs> you know, the movie with John Travolta. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was, um, I don't know, when did that come out? Uh, I was probably 11 or 12. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think that was 78. It's just the age to get into music, right around 11. A lot of us, that's when you start to realize what music is and the meaning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I had this sort of obsession with John Travolta. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd watch Welcome Back, Cotter. Yeah, yeah. Cotter, Mr. Cotter. So that was the first album I bought. I had a paper route, mm -hmm. which there's no paper routes anymore. <laughs> that, that, that means newspaper. Yeah. It's paper route. So a couple of weeks ago, we released a um, interview mm -hmm. with Dax Nielsen, and I, I forgot, I wanted to ask him because he grew up in the 90s, and I assume maybe there were paper routes, but I'm always interested what, also what people's first jobs were, mm -hmm. which we didn't get to ask. That would be interesting, yeah. What was your first but the paper pay route, position? You know, that was the first time I started making my own money, and we had a record store. It was a place called Lane Co. 
Lane Cove. And it was a grocery store, but it was a it was not only a grocery store, it had other areas of the store. Yeah. It was a department store. It had a whole section in the back with that private coin dealer. Yeah. The coin dealer. There was collector. a coin dealer in the back. Yeah. The and, arcade. had an yeah. arcade. And then the pizza shop was connected. Yeah. And, and there was a record store yeah. in there. Yeah, that's where I bought my first vinyl. Jim, I bet 90% of your pay went to albums. Probably. 80 to 90. And my dad didn't like that I was spending my money on albums. He thought it was a waste of money. What are you doing with that money? But my... Uh, <laughs> My uh, my mom liked music, but my dad, uh, not to say anything bad about my dad, but he he wasn't in he wasn't into music at all, mm -hmm. you know. And I I find that odd. Once in a while, I'll meet someone who doesn't listen to music. Yeah, you know, for Mike and I who love music, there's not a day that doesn't go by that. Even if I get up in the morning, I might listen to something. Something to feed your soul or comfort you or get you psyched up yeah yeah and it yeah. it could take you it takes you out of uh where you are if, if you had a bad week that's mainly why i started with the fridays i'd come home from, from work now i'm working less because of covid mm -hmm. that was my just to take an hour even mm -hmm. you know how long the album is i have the luxury that i do have a finished basement and i can come downstairs and nobody will bother me and i can just listen to music so Albums and cassettes, they were pretty much 22 minutes aside, um, 20 Maybe. to 23 minutes aside, something like that. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you, you kind of tell time with it. You know, mm -hmm. with streaming today, I could listen for hours or I could just listen to a song or half a song and be done. This is very nostalgic, but you're listening to the album. You're, it's playing for you and you're giving yeah. it your time. Yeah. I mean, you could listen to a new one that came out that you can listen for 10 hours. <laughs> it's uh, Elton John. Mm -hmm. Elton John came out with a box set. Mm-hmm. It so clocks, you can just keep listening. It like clocks in at nine hours, 58 wow, minutes. Wow. Let me go to my uh, first remembrances. My brother and I would go to Woolworth's Five and Dime, Five, five and Ten, and uh, there'd be a big bin. You know, kind of like if you go to Walmart, there's the old CDs in there or something. You mm -hmm. know, There's these bins, and we would look through these bins and find 45s, three for a dollar. I remember the first ones I brought back uh, was David Bowie, mm -hmm. Fame. Okay. And uh, and right, a song called Right, and I don't even know it. This is, that's the weird part. Another one was the Doobie Brothers, Blackwater, and uh, on the back of that was Song to See You Through. Um, this is 1975 and 1974, so they, it must have been the years, because I remember they were relatively new. Maybe mm -hmm. they were a year old or something yeah. when I got them. But I had this little record player. It was this this pink and baby blue and white, and it was all paper on the outside. You uh -huh. open up, it's got the handle on it. Yeah. And this little, and you know, a three-inch speaker. You know, I'm listening to all this mm -hmm. in three-inch speaker. But, uh, you know, for me as a kid at 11 years old, listening to Fame, mm -hmm. it's co-written by Carlos Olimar and John Lennon. I had no idea until last week. Uh-huh. John Lennon. And yeah, co-wrote David Bowie's Fame. It's a really unusual song. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just it's it's bizarre for the time. It's a very unusual. Well, Bowie was yeah, he had many bizarre yeah yeah that didn't conform to lyrics, chorus, lyrics, you know, bridge. Right. You know, he just he was adventurous. Yeah, Bowie was yeah. very adventurous. So that's my remembrance of that. And of mm -hmm. course, then you know, I have a, a older brother and older sister. Uh, you didn't. You had to plow yeah. your own way. Um, but my brother was feeding me Led Zeppelin and Van Halen, and, yeah. then, and then my sister had uh, Fleetwood Mac, the Rumors album, mm -hmm. and and such. Yeah. Yeah, Mike and I, we've known each other, like we've said before, since we were 10. So we pretty much, I think, um, introduced each other to different 
and you and you with the paper route yeah because i didn't make money till i was 16. yeah so you with the paper route i specifically remember you came in and said i bought hotel california and this, the album is just so good yeah. Now I I don't know if that's you know my memory from so yeah, many I don't years ago. Remember that? Yeah, and like okay, uh, maybe I can hear it if I come over. You know, it, it was. Yeah, it I was, don't know if it was Hotel California. Okay, well then it was it was because I got a Hotel California story. Real okay. Short. All right, but um, it's probably another Eagles album then. Well, years later, mm-hmm. I was working on the a garbage truck briefly. Seriously. And we would go to this um, poshy this posh development mm-hmm. in New Jersey. And they would throw out stuff that was perfectly good, TV sets. <laughs> and the one day there was albums sitting there. And we're talking 1983, 84. Mm-hmm. No, it might have been, 80, well, 80, maybe 85, around there, right? Mm-hmm. And one of them was Hotel California, the Eagles. The other one was a Wings album. So I'm, I'm trying to think when albums became unpopular when CDs broke out. I'm thinking 87. Yeah. So what happened was people who had an album collection, they held on to them for a little while. Mm-hmm. Maybe some people just held on to them. And some people just got rid of them right away. That's what yeah. you're saying. So the garbage. I remember it was the early 90s when I went to a record store in Princeton, Princeton Record Exchange, which I think is still there, hmm. sold all my albums. That was the um, breaking point. I don't know when I bought my first CD, though. It must have been... 88, yeah, 89. Yeah, 88. So it took me a good four or five years. I hung on to some albums. Right. I don't know and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about those special yeah. albums. And they went from, I didn't have a turntable anymore, mm-hmm. or eventually I didn't have a turntable. And they eventually, they were in the attic, they were in a box or, you know, a case. Mm-hmm. And then they, they moved to my crawl space here. Um, so <laughs> I had all my picture YouTube. moving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had all my U2 albums, and my wife, uh, she has all these Madonna albums, and I decided not to uh, sell those, to mm-hmm. hold on to those, and the one's worth $150 cool. today. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're going to get into. Right, some, I, of these, some of these really are worth something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're going to um, get into, the, this resurgence of vinyl. Mm-hmm. And we figure um, it started about 10 or 12 years ago because of... Record Store Day uh, actually started in 2008. Mm-hmm. Now, I know we hear about Record Store Day. It's like three or four times a year, might be four times a and year. And some people don't know what that is. They're not yeah. into vinyl that much. So, yeah, Record Store Day yeah. is a place and a time that you go to. Yeah, it's a, um, I think it started out twice a year. Uh, this year, they've already had three or four because of COVID, you know, shut the record stores down. Mm-hmm which are more and more record stores um, popping up now. But this will tell you something, is that vinyl revenue made up 62% of all physical music revenue this year so far, and this is this year, 2020. That's higher than I thought. So music listeners bought more vinyl records than CDs in the first half of 2020, Mm -hmm. according to the RIAA's new midterm our mid-year report, mm-hmm. marking the first time since the 1980s that CDs were not the dominant physical medium. Yeah. Now, the other thing is, I'm assuming this is per vinyl and not price, because you have to watch. Vinyl is a lot more expensive now mm-hmm. 
than it was before, especially these reissues. They can be $25, $30 or more. Wow. Where a CD you can get for like $10, sometimes $15. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so vinyl has outsold CDs. Yeah. Now, I bought a turntable a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. I decided it would be cool to start listening to vinyl again. Yeah. Of course, I've got about 600, 700 CDs. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple years ago, I recycled most of the cases. I remember. I got some of your yeah. booklets. Yeah. And I have these two binders. Each one holds about 250. And then I have a storage container of CDs. So <laughs> I just have a lot of stuff. So I just started collecting vinyl. I like to collect the color vinyl. But we're going to get into Record Store Day. Now, this is an annual event. Uh, It says annual. Uh, It's a little bit more than annual now. Inaugurated in 2008. Held on one Saturday every April and every Black Friday in November. So that's where... It's normally two days a year. Mm-hmm. And then now each year they have a band that represents Record Store Day. Mm-hmm. And in 2008, it was Metallica. They opened the event at Rasputin Music in Mountain View, California. And that was April 19th, 2008. That was mm-hmm. the first Record Store Day. Now, there were approximately 10 special Record Store Day releases. Now, what these are... They only make a certain amount of copies. It could be a vinyl album that was never, or something that was never released on vinyl. Because you have this period of time when CDs took over, they stopped producing vinyl. So you have all these albums that uh, were never available on vinyl. Right, nearly two decades worth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, they could also be something that was never released on vinyl that's old, too. And as you'll hear... In our interview from a couple weeks ago, uh, I talk about these two Cheap Trick albums Mm -hmm. uh, that were released. One last year, one this year. Two different concerts from the 70s, -hmm. which I don't think may not have been available before. Some of these um, vinyl releases are numbered, and some do go up in value, and some you take your chance with. The thing is, they will only allow you to buy one one special record day mm-hmm. uh, release. So you don't take it and buy five and profit from it. Yeah, because a week later, a lot of this, if you paid 25 bucks, it could be 40 the next week, $50. It depends on what it is. Mm-hmm. So in 2011, uh, the official ambassador, this is what they're calling it now for ambassador. the event, was Ozzy Osbourne. Did uh, they have an interpreter for him? Because last time I heard him speak on, on NPR, it's about a year and a half ago. I really couldn't understand anything you said. Yeah. Well, it was Ozzy Long. He's going to a record drawing. They might, yeah, it's yeah. amazing yeah. Uh, how he can sing so clearly. Yeah. I think it's almost like a person with a stutter. Yeah. I yeah. think of Mel Tillis. Uh, mm-hmm. We're going old school here. Yeah. Country. Yeah. He had a really bad stutter, mm-hmm. but he sang yeah. so, so smooth. So when Ozzy sings, you can understand him. Yeah. Just, just yeah. So maybe he was singing, uh, you know, his parts of that uh Introduction. So we go from 2008 to 2011 in a period of three years where the first one only had 10 releases. Mm -hmm. This one in 2011, believe it or not, over 600 artists celebrated the event with in-store appearances. 600. Cool. So that 
Sounds like it was every record store. Yeah. (laughs) And we want to talk about that, too, how, uh, if not now, later. The record stores, be it it vinyl, cassettes, CDs, really have dwindled in numbers. Yeah. The actual physical brick-and-mortar stores. This made it the world's largest music event of its kind. Wow. Because you have 600 artists. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not all in the same place. Right. But Um, they're at the same time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we go up to um, this year... And like I said, uh, on April 29th, it was announced that Record Store Day would be postponed. Right. And spread across three dates. Uh, August 29th, September 26th, and October 24th. Uh, I think the August one was canceled. Mm-hmm. I was to the last two, and I think there's one next month. So, so, yeah. so with the, these Record Store Days, you go to participating record stores. Does every record store participate in this? I think mostly everyone does. Okay. Now, sometimes there's, uh, there can be 200 releases that day, 400. Most of the record stores don't have everything. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last one I went to, it was in a mall, which we still have a mall uh, nearby. They still exist. One of few. Yeah. Now, they opened at 11, which was good for me because I don't like to get up early. <laughs> we, and, know, we know that, Jim. Yeah. yeah. So, I get there... And there's a line. Wow. Now, I normally go a little bit later in the day or the next day, but I, if I go the next day, albums that I want are no longer there. Right. So I had four albums in mind. I wanted Alice Cooper had a live album, The Cheap Trick one, uh, Johnny Cash. Uh, it was some kind of rare, rare outtakes of songs. They're just different mixes. Mm-hmm. And the interesting one <laughs> was... Uh, Warren Zevon, greatest hits. Wow. Picked by Judd Apatow. Um, so he picked what he thought were the greatest hits. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I go, I go there and there's a line. And I'm telling you, it was like uh, maybe 40 people. Wow. So I'm like, I really don't want to wait in this line. If I come back tomorrow, they might not have these. Mm-hmm. So I decided, let me go do a couple other things. I went to, out to Target. Mm-hmm. I come back an hour later. And there was no line. Mm-hmm. And I walked right in. Yeah. Because they were only allowing a certain amount of people in the store. Okay. I think normally uh, there might not be a line. And this isn't in a major city or anything. So I think if you went to New York or Philly, mm-hmm. uh, even on a normal day. This is in New Jersey, right? Central New Jersey? No, this is in Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. Palmer Park Mall. Oh, okay. So I, I was happy. I left with um, the four albums. So you got, I, you got all four then. That's yeah, really and cool. The other interesting thing is that when I first got there, I saw a guy come out of the store and I went up to him and I asked him how long he was waiting. And he told me he got there at 5 a.m. Mm. So diehard, diehard buyer. There's a record store in New Brunswick. Right. And there's the one I went to in the Palmer Park Mall is, is probably... 30 minutes away. Mm-hmm. So I got two record stores within reach. There used to be a time where I think maybe there could have been a record store in every other town. All um, over, yeah. Yeah. But there wasn't, they all weren't good. I mean, record stores, they would just have a lot of the pop stuff, that they're the high volume. Yeah. Like you and I used to search out the cool record shops. Yeah. There was really a cool one in Bethlehem, yeah, PA. Play, play it again. Right, right. I don't think they're there anymore. Right. Actually, let me tell you, the, the one in the Palmer Mall is called Spin Me Round. Mm-hmm. So I want to give a 
Spin Me Around. Give shout out to Spin Me. Yeah. And they do, uh, they have video on YouTube uh, mm-hmm. when they uh, get in collections and they reveal what they have. Yeah. And they're always in the front bin. Mm-hmm. So if you see something like, and these are old, these are from collections that people turn in. Mm-hmm. So you might see something like, oh, I got to I got to get out there and right. see if they have it. Yeah. It's great marketing, great marketing yeah. for the used product yeah. that just comes in randomly. Yeah, and the people like that it. work there are great. Mm-hmm. So I found this article. It's from uh, New Brunswick Today. It's about a record store owner in New Brunswick, New Jersey, which is about thirty-five minutes from here. And it's called A Day in the Life of Hub City's Only Record Store. And this is by Bennett Kelly. And it was on November 8th, 2020, this was published. Now, the record store owner's name is Andrew Spina. It's S-P-I-N-A. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. He said, I started collecting records pretty young, probably around 12 or 13, just saving up money, buying a record here and there off the boardwalk. Now, the store has a sign, it says Vinyl Record Shop, and it's hand-painted in black and gold lettering on the window front. It's the only record store currently in the Hub City. That's what New Brunswick is called, a place known for its local music scene. Now, New Brunswick was home to several record stores during the 1980s and 1990s, including Cheap Thrills, Music from a Different Kitchen, which was owned by Jim Babjack of the Smithereens, and Planet X. But the last record store closed down around 1998, Spina reckons. Spina says, when I was in school here and going to all the shows, every single weekend the topic of conversation would inevitably be, why isn't there a record store? And why isn't there a music venue in a college town? Spina did his part when he opened Spina Records in 2014 in a basement shop at 25 Easton Avenue. Now in 2017, he moved above ground to 118 Easton Avenue, doubling the store's size. After graduating Rutgers in uh, 2008, he apprenticed under fellow Rutgers graduate Rob Marchisoto at Amber Lion Antique Store on George Street. He says that formed not only my road to owning a record store, but really defined my passion for vintage finds and antiques, dealing with chiselers and tough sellers. Spina saw the opportunity in its small table of vinyl records, which was a top-selling product at the 3,500-square-foot store that closed in 2013. He says, It wasn't until I worked there that I realized I think I want to try opening a store and go into business for myself. Now, he doesn't do much advertising. Um, Having the brick-and-mortar store is an advertisement in itself, and people know to bring collections to the store for appraisal and hopefully for sale. He says kids aren't looking for near-mint Barbara Streisand records. They want Abbey Road. They want The Wall. It's a misconception that all records are popular again, because in the marketplace, only some records are popular again. Now, his recent vinyl purchase was 700 records. And it was the biggest of three collections. The biggest of the three collections came through a consignment connection he's worked with for the past three years. And he says they'll each get a cut when the records sell. The two smaller collections he bought from people who walked in. He said, I went through the crates that the walk-in person brought in, kind of evaluated what he had, made an offer, a counter-offer, came to a price, and then once 
That's done, he just buys them. And then I spend the rest of the time going through them, pulling the best stuff out first, pricing it, cleaning it, and then putting it out on the shelves. Later in the day, a teenager reached out on Instagram brings in about 10 records for sale. He comes in and says, hi, I've got the records. Spina asks for a few minutes to appraise them, inspecting their playing conditions and comparing prices on Discogs. After about eight minutes, Spina brings the customer back over and shares the diagnosis. Uh, he says this pile, they're very common and they're not that desirable. This one, unfortunately, is a little too scratched up. The Miles Davis one. This pile I am interested in. I could do $25 for this. So it's good to know that there are still record stores. More and more, I think, are popping up recently. Um, unfortunately, with uh, COVID-19, some had had to shut down. But hopefully when this is over, we'll see more record stores, more interest in vinyl. So again, that was from an article from uh, New Brunswick Today, written by Bennett Kelly. And I thank Bennett for giving me permission to uh, talk about his article and to read some excerpts from it. So uh, next up, we're going to talk about the most expensive vinyl albums. Right. Not ones that sold most expensive, but ones that if you would have them, possess them now and sell them, they would be worth that. Yeah. Not most expensive to buy when they were new, of course. So we're going by this list of 40. Uh, we've each picked, I think, six. Um, this is from this is from finance101.com. The article is by James Regan. Yeah. So I'm going to start with number 39. All right. And that is Miles Davis, Kind of Blue. And this was from 1959. Um, and it says it may not be the number one on this list, but it's arguably the coolest record on here. Yes. Miles Davis is cool. So Miles Davis revolutionized the jazz genre multiple times during his career, but his most valuable record, at least in financial terms, is Some Kind of Blue. Mm -hmm. This is the best-selling jazz album to date. Okay. There's nothing really special about this except the original pressing of the album. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't say how many were made. If you have an original <laughs> pressing, um, it can rake up to $1,000. Now, this is the least expensive on this list so it's just going up from here jim so it could be a little it could be in reach a thousand dollars if you have a thousand laying around mm -hmm. and you want you know want that original yeah recording jim all of these are legitimately produced and sold albums this doesn't have this does not include bootlegs and some of you are thinking that because when we used to go out we used to look for bootlegs yeah and we pay higher and we get stuff that's really unique yeah these are this, directly from the uh yeah. record company yeah all right, at number 36, we have XTC. That's X and a T and a C, not the word ecstasy. XTC had Science Friction, and it's an early album. They put out in 1977. And this British New Wave band put out this and the uh, single called She's So Square. They purportedly made only 50 copies. Wow. Yeah, put it out on a 12-inch. This album, if you have it, from 1977, it could be worth about $2,000. Wow. I like that title, uh, Science Friction. Science Friction. Yeah. Yeah, uh, XTC is quite scientific and uh, logical in their lyrics. So at 24, and we are, as you notice, we are skipping around, but we're going to highest to lowest. Uh, 24 is Elvis Presley, Speedway, wow. 1968. Now, I'm a, I'm a big Elvis fan, and when, uh -huh. I, go, when I do go to uh -huh. record conventions, 
uh, which I hadn't been the one in probably a year or more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I look for like the last one I was at a guy had, a guy had tons of Elvis and they were all cheap. I picked up a couple for a buck a piece wow. and they sound, you know, I look at the albums. That's another thing. I look, you look at the album. These albums are, are sometimes graded. Even these albums that we're talking about that are rare. Mm-hmm. If you have a scratched up copy, if it's in really poor condition, it may not be worth it's not going to be worth what we're telling. Yeah, these you. are these are vinyl that people and covers yeah, these that have people to have be cared in about. Really yeah. good condition. Mm-hmm. By the time Elvis made Speedway, he was nearing the end of his acting career, and the film wasn't well received by critics or at the box office. He was most known for singing, not acting. Yeah, believe it or not, every every movie that Elvis came out with. I forget how many there were. There were mm-hmm. like 20, 30 movies. Wow. There's an album for that movie. Yeah. So Elvis... Marketing, had, yeah, marketing, yeah. marketing. And uh, despite the film's failings, copies of the soundtrack are extremely valuable. Hmm. And rumor has it that only 300 copies were printed. Wow. So that this, is so low. And it said, if you had the foresight not to take the record out of its packaging. So this is the key. <laughs> you would not have played this album. See, I don't believe in that, Jim. Yeah. Jim, I don't believe in the, the toys, the yeah. toy figures and leaving them in the box. I'm yeah. going to take them out and play with them because, you know, you only live once. Well, but so, anyway, if you do that, if you think that. Yeah. I mean, some people buy with the action figures. They'll buy one to... One to keep in the box, and one, one to play with. One to let the dog play to, with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you didn't give this one, if the dog didn't get this yeah. one, and you still have the red sticker, that's another on the shrink wrap. Ooh. You could have five thousand dollars on your hands. Nice. So that one's worth. So there's only three hundred of that one. Yeah. Nice. So what do you what do you got, Mike? So next up is number twenty three of the top forty most expensive vinyl LPs. We've been talking about stuff that we know already, and this one, though, I've never heard of. It's a new one. Okay. So it's Brute Force, mm-hmm. and the album is King of Fuh. <laughs> 1969. Okay. Summer of 69 of all times. Hmm. Um, this is printed by the Beatles label Apple Recordings, and it almost never saw the light of day, all because it featured an obscenity in the lyrics. And I'm going to let you listeners figure out what that obscenity might yeah. be for King of Fuh. It came clear... To Capitol and EMI, they wanted no part of this. Mm-hmm. So they featured an overdub of Philharmonic Strings done by George Harrison himself. Wow. And uh, then the Beatles decided to put it out. So the record was given a proper release not until 2010. Okay, so 10 years ago, finally they decide it's nearly a half century after it was recorded. Uh, but the original run was only 1,000 copies. If you have that, it's worth about five thousand dollars. King wow. of Fu. Yeah. Original King of Fu. So the the Beatles had they were pretty ingrained in Apple mm-hmm. uh in having in picking artists. I right. don't know if you know that. And you know, several artists were on uh Apple or there might have been another label. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you Beatles freaks out there mm-hmm. will know the yeah. answer. <laughs> uh one of them was Badfinger and Badfinger's gonna come into prominence in a future pro- podcast so yes. yeah stay tuned for that yeah. okay looking forward to that okay now we have number 16 mm-hmm. and i'm gonna make a confession i simply love olivia newton john i've loved her since i was a kid mm-hmm. she looks good on the album cover actually yeah now this is one of the albums i didn't have uh, i don't even know if i saw the movie but i'm sure you all know what i'm gonna say it's xanadu xanadu 1980 
now this recording is Olivia Newton-John and, and ELO, cool. Electric Like Orchestra. Yeah, yeah. So this is the um, album Xanadu. Mm -hmm. It's funny because the author of this article says the title Xanadu frequently appears on another type of list. And it's been called one of the worst movies ever made. Yeah, yeah. yeah so. And it was a, a nightclub, too. I've been to Xanadu the nightclub. I yeah. forget what city that was in. So this looks like it's the soundtrack to the album. Uh, rumor has it that Olivia Newton-John hated the way she looked in the picture printed on the front of the disc so much that she had the record company stop the pressing. Wow. Now, this is a picture disc. Oh, okay. so it's got her on the on the vinyl. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, I mean, she's got, it's like, you know, it's like imprinting wrinkles on your body, Jim, yeah. because it's all the lines, you know? So she's got lots of lines on her body because of all the lines well, on the album. Well, it's just her head on the album. Oh, well, she got lines on her face then. I don't know. That, no, well, the, yeah, I yeah. mean, it can be the cover, but <laughs> we don't really know what was on the vinyl. It could have been, you know, yeah. full body or something. This is interesting. Between 20 and 30 rec records survived. I don't know how they know this. But if you manage to sneak a copy away from Olivia Newton-John, you may be able to cash it in for $9,100. So Wow. Uh, so that some got out, obviously. Mm -hmm. so, so what's up next, Mike? Uh, we have uh, Bruce Springsteen, Spirit in the Night, taking us way back to 1973. I don't know. I don't know Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> so... Promotional copies will sell for hundreds. So there was promo copies out there. They sell for hundreds of dollars each. But the original pressings of the commercial release could be as much as 5000 So um, though, you know, this album wasn't met with critical acclaim mm -hmm. uh, and neither were the singles. It wasn't until his third album, Born to Run, that he got commercial success. Yeah. So if you have the original printing, not promotional, you could be worth $5,000. So we're up to uh, number 10 with... The Beatles, Yesterday and Today, 1966. Oh, it's a good year. You know what I mean? Now, this album I know very well. Original cover of this record featured a photo of John, Paul, George, and Ringo dressed in butcher's attire, <laughs> holding headless baby dolls. No. With raw meat strewn across their laps. No, you're making this up, man. What? They don't have a picture of it here. Yeah, but I, okay. I know the album because, believe it or not, my brother has a copy. Very uh, cool. It says, in retrospect, it's hard to imagine what they were thinking. Yes. Um, <laughs> though, who are we to question one of the best-selling and most influential bands of all time? The Roaches? So, sa safe to... Huh? The, the Beatles. <laughs> the Beatles. Safe to say the cover wasn't well-received. I so, guess not. So much, in fact, that Capitol Records spent $250,000 buying back records that had been printed and shipped to stores. Wow. This album is worth fifteen thousand three hundred dollars. Mm. It says they weren't be able, they weren't able to get their hands on all of them. Jim, I never knew about that. You yeah. want to say that again? They're they're pic they're pictured the the Beatles are pictured as butchers. Yeah, they're wearing butcher uh, aprons, and they have headless doll babies in their hands. Yeah, they're dolls. They're baby dolls. No, dolls. Yeah. yeah, yeah, doll babies. Yeah, just... and then there's raw meat in there. Like wow, I have never like heard of this. They're butchering babies. Or something. I have never heard of yeah. this. Yeah. So uh, next up, Jim, we have, we've been talking a lot about stuff from the 60s and the 70s. We're going to jump ahead to 1998 mm -hmm. with okay. a high price album, and, and I'm going to tell you why. The White Stripes, mm -hmm. Lafayette Blues. Here's why. There's only 15 copies pressed of okay. this vinyl, and each cover is hand painted by a man named David 
Buick. Mm-hmm. Okay, so 15, and they're hand-painted. The album, uh, which features a song, Lafayette Blues, on side A, and Sugar Never Tasted So Good on side B. Uh, the copies were made for a Detroit record release show for the band in 1988. And uh, just... Uh, if you would have one and you spent $6 to get one there at mm-hmm. the show, uh, it would be worth $12,700. Wow. If you spent your $6. So this, of course, is Jack White, the White Stripe. So speaking of like hand-painted, yeah, yeah. I'm going to blow your mind with this one. And this is not in our top 40, by the way, but I came across this mm-hmm. uh, while I was doing a little research. So the Flaming Lips. Yeah, we know that. They had a human blood-filled album. Yes. I don't know what You're that speechless. means. Yeah, I'm stumped. So it was called Hetty Fwens, <laughs> with a W, uh, was available for $2,500 in a limited edition of 10 copies with all the proceeds. Now, this is a good cause. Yeah. Going to the Oklahoma Humane Society. As charity. Okay, still don't see where you're going with this, but this now, is this was not only um, the Flaming Lips, but, <laughs> but think about it. This is 10 copies. Yeah, wow. So you had to get you, in. You had to beat my 15, didn't you? Yeah, you yeah, had yeah, to get, yeah, yeah. Uh, I had 15, okay. It wasn't only the Flaming Lips. Among the celebrities who gave their blood samples were Nick Cave, Erica Bayou, if I'm saying that right, mm-hmm. um, Coldplay's Chris Martin. Wow. And... John Bon Jovi. John Bon Jovi. No, believe it or not, I'm going to bring up her name again. Olivia Newton-John. No, no. Kesha. Kesha! (laughs) Kesha with the dollar sign. We're always talking about Kesha. No, she's a nice person. She can't sing, but she's a nice person. So there were, I didn't see. and then there was one other one, uh, real quick. Harry Manfredini, mm-hmm. Friday the Thirteenth, original motion motion picture score, created by Waxworks Records, mm-hmm. was released on limited hundred copies, blood filled liquid vinyl. We don't know whose blood that was. It doesn't say. So Maybe you're Jason. telling me that they've got they've got blood, real blood, mixed in with the yeah, vinyl. Yeah, here I our listeners won't be able to see, but yeah, yeah. I do have pictures. Yeah, well, sure enough, that. it it's. I, you know, I guess it's blood. I guess I it stays how, red. You know how it gets... I don't know how thick the album was to fill it with blood. Yeah. You know? They are a limited pressing of 10 blood-filled albums. Yeah. And again, it's a flaming lips, right? Wow. So, Mike, why don't you give us uh, another one on the list? Yeah, yeah. So, at number five is uh, Bob Dylan, the freewheeling Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. I know that one. This is uh, 1963. Sometimes a small mistake or imperfection is enough to drive up the price. On this album, a few tracks were meant to be replaced before the release, but someone at the pressing plant missed the memo, and a few copies featuring the wrong songs were pressed. Oh. Yeah. So if you've got That's a copy... Yeah, so it would be interesting. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you have a copy with a serial number that ends in dash 1A and includes these four songs, and that is Rocks and Gravel, Let Me Die in My Footsteps, Gambling, Willie's Dead Man's... <laughs> And, wow, talking John Birch Blues. Yeah, that's some complicated So titles. pull out your vinyl. Yeah. Uh, free willing. Yeah. Check this. Yep. That said that there are said to be less than 20 mono copies as opposed to stereo and only two stereo copies. So 20 mono and two stereo. And they're worth around $35,000. Wow. Yeah. That's some big stuff there. So next I have uh, number four. Uh, Tommy Johnson, mm-hmm. who I've never heard of, and this is from 1930. That's why you it's not yeah. popular in our time there. Alcohol and Jake Blues. Uh-huh. 
So in a, in a stroke of luck, uh, the North Carolina seller of this extremely rare 78 RPM slab came into possession of the record at an estate sale. Mm-hmm. So he threw the record, this is the seller of the album, he, um, he threw the record up on eBay and watched a bidding frenzy take place. Wow. So obviously he didn't know what he had. When the final bid came in at $37,100. <laughs> now, the reason is there are believed to be only two copies of the record in existence. Mm-hmm. And they both now belong to the winning bidder, John Tefteller. Uh-huh. Um, so this uh, Tommy Johnson, he was a blues singer and guitarist, and he was the inspiration for the character of the same name in the Coen Brothers film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Huh. And he was no relation to Robert Johnson. Yeah. Just so you know. Jim, we've got two more to talk about, mm-hmm. and the prices keep going up and up. At number three, we have the Black Album. After recording the Black Album, that's Prince, mm-hmm. or the artist now, formerly. formerly and now known as yeah. Prince. Uh, after recording the Black Album, also known as the Funk Bible, and pressing half a million copies, so he's got 500,000 plus copies out there, he decided to halt the release and paid the label to recall all of the records. The reason was the singer had a substance-fueled epiphany that this record was evil. <laughs> so um, it got some radio play. It was bootlegged. And uh, it says, evidently, the singer changed his mind about the record. He released a CD version of this, after all that, mm-hmm. in 1994. <laughs> so if you have the Canadian version, it is worth $27,000. And if you have the American version, original, of this, mm-hmm. it's worth over $42,000. Wow. So next we have the, this is the Holy Grail. Yes, it is. And it is. It is it definitely... Is. The Holy Grail of vinyl albums, Mm -hmm. because there is only one, okay? (laughs) Now, there's more than one, but it it is numbered one. Right. There is only one, number one, in uh, limited printing. So, this is the Beatles. It's called called the Beatles. Yeah. The Beatles, comma, the Beatles, a.k.a. the White Album, Mm -hmm. 1968. Uh, This particular album is one of a kind. It's the very first pressing of the beloved ninth album by the Fab Four. And it's marked with the serial number A and about seven zeros and a one. Mm -hmm. So it's one Mm -hmm. to prove it. For years, it was rumored that the first copy went to the late John Lennon, but really it went to Ringo Starr. All right. Ringo probably still has it. So Ringo kept this in a bank vault for three and a half decades. Wow. So that's uh, 35 years. Yeah. This expensive piece of polyvinyl chloride... (laughs) It's a slab, man. It's a slab. Was sold during a charity auction for a whopping $790,000. Now, Ringo did something good with the money. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, He put the money towards his own Lotus Foundation, a charity that provides support for victims of domestic violence, cancer research, the homeless, and other notable causes. Jim, that is a great way to make money. From somewhere. I mean, I don't know where the money comes from. Yeah. A great way to make money and, and give it away. Now, even if uh, you aren't in possession of this original vinyl, mm-hmm. one that was numbered 23, mm-hmm. you know, A and all the zeros. Yeah. It was number 23, sold for $13,750 in 2012. Wow. So you can get your hands on one for a lot less than 790 So, Jim, if you had this one, 
uh, you know, like the show says, what would mm-hmm. you do? Well, what would you do if you had number 24 and someone offered oh. you $13,000 for it? What would you do? I don't know. I, you always think of holding on to it until you can or, mm-hmm. or even uh, giving it to your child. And- I'd sell it. so next up um we are going to be looking at the top singles next up we have the top 10 signals from 50 years ago (laughs) yeah all right. So, uh, Jim, you're gonna you're gonna start um, you're gonna start with number ten, and then we're gonna go down to one. Yeah, and this is um, again, this is the week of December nineteenth, nineteen seventy. We're going uh, back to nineteen seventy again. Yeah. yeah. Um, we have number ten. No matter what, by Badfinger. Yeah, love it. Love that band. Now, this is a song about a guy trying to get a woman who won't pay much attention to mm-hmm. him. And he'll do everything for her, but apparently she's put up a wall between them. Yeah. Um, now, here's some lyrics. Won't you tell me what you found, girl? Oh, girl, won't you? I don't know what she found. You know, mm-hmm. maybe a watch he was missing or mm-hmm. something. Now, I have to be honest because until I looked at these lyrics, and I've heard this song many times, mm-hmm. I could have swore you say, knock down the old gray wall. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like that. Yeah. It's brick wall. All right, and be a part of it all. Yeah, it's the uh, it's the accent. You know, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna give it to that. If you would give me all, as I would give it to you. Now, to suit to the way I yeah. said that, you yeah. know, yeah, nothing would be nothing, and and yeah, so yeah. on. Mm-hmm. Although the song and recording was a favorite of Bad Fingers, shortly after it was recorded, mm-hmm. the hierarchy at Apple reportedly was not inclined to release it in any format. Wow. And it wasn't until Al Steckler, the American director of Apple in New York, hearing the tape in August 1970 and considering it a strong entry by the band that it was remixed and slotted for the upcoming LP as a single release. Mm-hmm. And I found a version of this, believe it or not, by Def Leppard. Wow. And I have to tell you, this Def Leppard, they put out an album called Yeah, and it's all cover tunes. I'm have to check that out. It's a killer version. And it's not totally... They didn't take it and make it into a Def Leppard song. Mm-hmm. It's a very good um, good tribute to this album. Right, right. Yeah. I think it's a great song. It starts off really aggressively. In fact, I let my brother listen to it uh, just uh, last week. I played it for him. Mm-hmm. He goes, yeah, I know that song. It's the Beatles, right? <laughs> I said, no, it really... It sounds yeah. like it could be the Beatles. Um, listeners, if you don't know this song, No Matter What, by Badfinger... Uh, check it out because you do already know the song. You yeah. just don't know it by its title. Or even check out Badfinger. Yeah. Um, it'd, it, be, it'd be great to, you know, check them out. Like maybe see if they're still around or what they're doing today. Maybe yeah. we should do that sometime. Yeah. Yeah. Number nine, we have Gypsy Woman by mm-hmm. Brian Hyland. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I really didn't know this song. Oh, um, I don't know it either, Jim. Nope. Now, it's a simple song. It's about a guy who falls in love with a gypsy woman, mm-hmm. and she's about to leave with her caravan. Okay. So it's actually, yeah. it's not like he's saying she's a gypsy. She's actually a gypsy woman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The song, like I say, is it's almost too simple to even be on the top 10. Yeah. How did it get there? I listened to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the chorus is literally, he says it only twice. She was a gypsy woman. 
And then I love you, Gypsy Woman, at the end. He says it, the chorus is, is like just two times, you know, and I don't think if this song was released today. No, it wouldn't be making it, no. Yeah. No. And it was originally recorded by the Impressions in 1961. Yeah. So. But now, uh, he is known for other songs, more well-known. He sang and wrote Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini. Oh, really? Yeah. Brian Hyland? Yes. And so, that, there's eight, by the way, there's eight words in that title. Yeah. It's getting a little long. But uh, he also wrote and sang, or I should say he sang, I'm not sure if he wrote, Sealed With a Kiss. Mm-hmm. And uh, I enjoyed that song uh, a little better and he's, than Chips. And Man. Brian Hyland's still alive. He's in his 70s. You should find out what he's yeah, doing. Yeah, we should interview him. Yeah, yeah. So next up, we got uh, number eight. Oh, this, by the way, what you're going to say next is another title with eight words in it. Just that. Okay. I'm, I'm a numbers guy here. So, okay. Yeah. So at number eight is, mm-hmm. does anybody really know what time it is? Question mark. So it's, you know, even longer. Now, this is a song. I've, I've known this song a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, it came out in 1970. Mm-hmm. Now, I love this song because it's, there's horns. Uh, Chicago's known for their horns. The They're, whole intro is very jazzy and, yeah. and bouncy. Yeah. So horns and piano, horns are prominent in this song. Now, what I didn't know was there there was another version. The original version started off with a freeform piano solo, mm-hmm. and that goes on for a minute fourteen, in front of the jazzy other intro. Yeah, right. and then just the keeps horns. Going. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And it is the exact same song. They just cut out this piano, which I think actually works. I've um, got to listen to that. I've got to listen to the yeah, long version. Somewhere. It doesn't add anything to the song. Mm-hmm. And it is um, improvised, so... Mm-hmm. So he's not, he's not playing it yeah. again very easily, yeah. Now, the trumpet player, Lee Logan, L-O-U-G-H-A-N-E, mm-hmm. he was six foot three trumpet player. Wow. He was also an actor, and he was also on the Bee Gees song, Too Much Heaven. <laughs> wow. Now, this song was the first song uh, Chicago recorded, mm-hmm. very first song for the debut album. I did not know that. But it was not released as a single until two tracks from the second band's album, Make, Make Me Spot, Smile, that's a song, and 25 or 6 to 4 had become hits. And then they released this song, and this was the band's third top 10. Very daring to start out their first recorded song with the piano improv, and then the jazzy, bouncy intro. And then, I mean, it's not a, a yeah. regular way to start out a song. I mean, for recording, it's like, let's do all this. So, you know, I got to give them credit for that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, number seven is next up. So, this is uh, number seven is Stoned Love by the Supremes. Mm-hmm. Now, this is, um, I wasn't impressed by this song. Uh, Me either, Jim. And it's, um, it's one of, it's probably one of their last hits as the, a supreme the, mm-hmm. now many people saw this song as a coded reference to drug use yeah okay the many, stoned part yeah. yeah many radio station owners were at first apprehensive to play the record wow uh and barry gordy who was the motown motown's founder was also said to have hated the song uh, <laughs> <laughs> i hate that song get down the radio so the label executive, Barney Ailes, had to arrange for RKO radio stations to agree to play Stone Love before releasing the single. So they had to play it first. So he talked them into playing it, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. And then fearing that the song was indeed a reference to drug use, CBS cut a live performance of the song from a November 1970 episode of the Merv Griffin Show. Mm-hmm. 
Now, the this is what's interesting, because this song was originally written and recorded as Stone Love, with no D. Stone Love. But during the process of mixing and releasing, it was mislabeled as Stone Love. Love. So it was not about drugs. Yeah. It defined the concept of an unchanging bond between one another. Yeah. You know, a solid relationship, solid love. For those who don't follow the Supremes much or know much about the, the, their music, uh, Where Did Our Love Go? You mm-hmm. Can't Hurry Love? Stop. In the name, in the name of, love. of Love. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so it's interesting that this would be there when those other songs did so well. Yeah, and it was their last Billboard top 10 hit for the group. Peaked at number seven. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm going to put this in perspective with the Supremes. Is that this was off their 21st album? Wow! wow okay. Wow, wow! Wow! The Supremes had 29 albums total in 14 years. So that's two albums a year. Put this in even more perspective. The Rolling Stones. So to compare these two, yeah, uh, to know just how many, because most bands nowadays. Um, you're lucky if you get an album every three years, mm. four years sometimes. Uh, the Rolling Stones, in their 52 years of recording, have recorded 25 albums. Yeah. So, and they recorded 29 in 14 yeah. years. And they're doing um, the singing. They're singing, arranging, yeah. but they're not writing. You know, there's a lot of writers who are, who are writing the material. Maybe they yeah, write they some. Yeah, uh, Motown had a lot of... Yeah, a lot of, a lot of songs writing. to choose from. They they would actually yeah. go through and and look through and, and yeah. choose and say, oh, this is a good one. Mm-hmm. You could let's try this one. So uh, a little different in number six. So number six, we have a song that's actually dear to my heart. <laughs> Knock three times. Yeah, I've always liked a song. You know, since I was a, mm-hmm. a, a young teen. Yeah. What's interesting is this song, Mike, I don't know if you noticed, but it's it's by Dawn. I did notice that. I was going to mention it's and by it's Dawn. it's not by Tony Orlando and Dawn. When I called it up on Apple Music, there was Tony's face yeah. along with Dawn. Well, Tony is singing on it, of course. Yeah. Uh, his name was Michael Anthony Orlando Casavitas. He was at the time of the recording working as a producer and the singer for a rival record label, and he first heard the tune recorded by another artist and immediately knew the song could be a hit if produced as he envisioned. Yeah. So he cut the track discreetly under the name Don, hoping that his current record label would not find out. And upon release, the song became a great success. Just like he envisioned it. Yeah. Yeah. So for those who don't know, Dawn was the two singers, the two female singers. They together were called Dawn. Yeah. It's not just one female. I think the singers on this song are not the... They were early... There were two different women. Okay. Yeah. Tony Wine and Linda November. <laughs> <laughs> Tony. Uh, I mean, why would he call himself yeah. Tony if he's working with Tony? Now, if you haven't heard this song, you really need to. It's about a guy who lives in an apartment. Mm-hmm. And this beautiful woman lives in the apartment below him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he wants to give her signals as as to her interest in him. Yeah. And does she really even know him? Do, do they pass in the hallway? Does she think he's a creep? Yeah. Is he singing so loud up there that she actually hears him saying, mm-hmm. Hey, girl, what you doing down there? Mm-hmm. Dancing alone every night while I live right above you. Mm. So he knows she's single. Yeah. Uh, I can hear your music playing. I can feel your body swaying. 
one floor below me you don't even know me so this he's stalking he's about yeah. to stalk her mm -hmm. i love you i That's think what i love you he just blurts out i love you yeah and then oh my darling so he wants her to knock you know there's different signals knock three times if you want me mm -hmm. and then i think he says uh twice on the pipe means you ain't gonna show so she's got to hear him singing up there to know what, you know, signals. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she probably just stomped with her foot, yeah. you know? <laughs> so, Mike, uh, you got the... Uh... Yeah, we're going to go number five through number one. Okay. Yeah, this week, 50 years ago. Number five, Black Magic Woman by Santana. We know Santana, guitar virtuoso, spanning decades. Um, it's not just a song, it's an experience. Um, the song got airplay... Uh, the one used for airplay was three minutes and fifteen seconds, mm -hmm. but the other version they've cut they've cut pieces out. Yeah, the other version because I was like that can't be three minutes and fifteen seconds. I mean, <clears throat> you know. So uh, the other version allows for more guitar and includes at the end. It's called Black Magic Woman slash Gypsy Queen. So that whole part at the end where they're just jamming with the mm -hmm. congas and full band, uh, just just jamming. And it comes to a great close. Yeah, that would be uh, Gypsy Queen right at the end there. Uh, number four. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Jim, when I listened to this uh, uh, prepping for the podcast, it was really hard to go from Santana to the Partridge family. Yeah. You know, uh, it's a big leap. You know, maybe you can do it better than I can. Uh, mm -hmm. it, was, it was tough. But uh, it's I Think I Love You by the Partridge family. And it's starring Shirley Jones and David Cassidy. The Partridge family. Yeah. You know, we uh, I grew up uh, watching as a kid, watching them, watching uh, the monkeys. Yeah, the Brady know? Bunch, maybe. Yeah, yeah, but musically, <laughs> you know, the monkeys. You know, I I was I was yeah. uh, shaped mm -hmm. by early by the monkeys and the mm -hmm. Partridge Family, and I always wonder, you know, what would Danny do? You know, that's my question. You yeah. know, what would Danny think of all this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the Bonnie Ducher. Now, now this is another it, song. I, I have mm -hmm. a. Deep affection for seventies, like yeah. a cheesy, you know. Now Shirley, like was, a, Shirley, Shirley was a bit older than you. You didn't have a crush on Shirley. No, no. Oh, okay, go ahead. But I like this Jan. song. Mm -hmm. And uh, my wife and I were at Bush Gardens one mm -hmm. year, mm -hmm. um, many years ago. Mm -hmm. David Cassidy was doing a show there. Yeah. And we didn't get to see him, but I was surprised because. We ran into, of all people, Danny uh, Bonaduce. Danny Bonaduce. Yeah. He was there also. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. I don't know what he did, mm -hmm. you know, but he was obviously going over to where the, the show was. Was it, it wasn't like the Partridge family, it was David Cassidy or? Yeah, it was, what was David Cassidy. Yeah. He probably had a band with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're probably talking uh, in the mid 90s, mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So my earliest memories uh, weren't. So much, I don't know how it got from the Partridge family to David Cassidy, but David Cassidy became popular. He was well, David quite, Cassidy is he, the main singer on this song. Yeah, he's, so. yeah and he's yeah. quite the heartthrob. <laughs> so, so my sister, my older sister, three, three years older, she had a poster. You know, Jim, this is so long ago. She either had a poster or she made a poster, a drawing. She was an artist back then, my uh -huh. sister, and uh, had, a, had a poster of David Cassidy. Okay. There was a falling out. Okay. There was some sort of falling out, mm -hmm. you know, kind of like, you know, you had with the Bee Gees or yeah. with John Travolta. Or John something. Travolta. John Travolta, yeah. yes. It's a sad falling out. It is. Yeah. It, the, the poster, uh, my brother and I somehow changed it from David Cassidy to 
David Assidy, <laughs> and and uh, his face got marked up and stuff. And it's sad, you know. It's just it's just child's play, you know. We don't mean any harm against David, you know. If he was here, I'd say. Well, you, you, you said know. your sister had a falling out before yeah. that, right? Yeah, yeah. So she didn't really care about the post. No, 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 she didn't care. Okay. She might have done it. I just remember oh. that's how, I don't know how it happened. I actually don't remember, but it was no more than. The, the poster's yeah, gone. Yeah, briefly, me and John, um, we had a falling out. Johnny, you call him. Yeah. 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 And uh, John Travolta put out an album called Travolta Fever. <laughs> it, was a, it was a gatefold, you know, mm-hmm. opened up, and he, yeah. he was wearing a... He was wearing the w- tightest, like, white pants. White satin. John Travolta wasn't, in no, white satin. Now, to clarify, I wasn't in love with John Travolta. No, no. Okay. No. Not that there's anything wrong with that. You're exploring. But, but I was... Um, exploring I liked, music. No, yeah. yeah I liked yeah, his yeah. voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, his acting was okay. He was dancing, man. Dancing. Yeah. yeah. Dancing fool. I, I had a falling out. I didn't, didn't like John Travolta anymore. It wasn't cool, mm-hmm. even if it was cool at one time. <laughs> But with Greece, and Greece was kind of cool. Yeah, Greece is the word. So um, I took this, I went in my car. <laughs> now I took the album, physically took the album, put it in my car, yeah. and drove somewhere. I can't remember. You were, you were alone. You had to be alone. Yeah. yeah. And I I don't I don't think I was, dry, like, the car wasn't moving. I probably pulled over, and I took the album, and, I, and it was a double album, and I just whipped <laughs> the albums out. And I don't think it was, I think it might have been a field, so... So but can you imagine a farmer or something walking, you know, and then I took the, um, the actual gatefold and, and uh-huh. threw and whipped it, you know? Yeah. Sad. That was a sad no. day for me. So anyway. Oh, the things we went through. Okay. Yeah. So, so um, moving to number three. Yes. One less bell to answer by the fifth dimension. It's very slow. It's very smooth. This is a song about a woman losing her man. Okay. Uh, lyrics. I should be happy. But all I do is cry. Yeah. And uh, one less bell to answer. <laughs> one less bell to answer. So this was also done by Barbara Streisand and the, the cast of Glee. Um, okay. I enjoyed the, the cast of Glee mm-hmm. uh, doing this great version, uh, Kristen Chenoweth um, singing. And uh, yeah, it really comes together. But it's a 70s song. It's, uh, it's you know, early 70s, 1970. Uh, brought in that, uh, that slow and smooth and uh, talking about the breakup. Yeah, and I think the fifth dimension was uh, Motown. Okay. Yeah. Is this, um, did you say Patti LaBelle? No, Barbara yeah. Streisand. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Barbara, oh. like, yeah, Barbara Streisand. I didn't even know she sang that. Yeah. So, uh, number two, uh, a lot of variety, you know, in this. Mm-hmm. You know, when you go from Santana to the Partridge family, yeah. and then you go to, you know, Streisand in the Fifth Dimension. So, we're hitting... Yeah, like today. today's top ten is like ten rap songs. Yeah, yeah. And then some yeah. other pop. Not that there's anything wrong. Not that there's anything wrong. With rap, but, you know, that's the way it yeah. is. And we're old. Yeah. But you're talking about a lack of diversity. Yeah. So, Jim, here at number two is My Sweet Lord by George Harrison. Uh, it's from the album All Things Must Pass. Yes. And I really have to think about 1970. Okay? This is, this is recorded mid-1970. Mm-hmm. All Things Must Pass. Yeah. George Harrison doing the... It's is you know what kind of references? What's he going through with the loss of his friends, the the Beatles? Mm-hmm. Not the people died, um, but you know just the loss of the Beatles. And uh, so it's it's all things must pass. It's a very interesting song because it's really 
more of a repetitive praise chorus worship. You know, it's it's my sweet Lord, my sweet Lord. I really want to see you. I really want to know you. I really yeah. want to be with you. Alleluia, alleluia. You know, so so he's expressing uh, his his spiritual mm-hmm. feelings. Uh, you know, through yeah, through George song. Harrison was a very spiritual. Yeah. Jim, what's what's why is it slash? It's it isn't it a pity? Is that the B side? No, there's. I found out there's such a thing as a double A side. Okay, you're, now, you're doing three songs on your single. Got it. At least three or four. Well, no, that my sweet lord was on one side, isn't it a pity? Was on the other. Oh, they're both both considered A sides. There's no B side. It's a little pretentious, don't you think? Because it's still, you know, A side, B side. You're saying well, that one one is as important as the other. Yes, I see. Yes, I see. Because mm-hmm. when you have an A side and a B side, you're going to promote the A side mm-hmm. more or not promote at all the B side, that song. Mm-hmm. It may not get any airplay. Mm-hmm. So you want both sides to be promoted the same. Both sides are hits, in quotes, or prospective hit songs. Mm-hmm. Neither side will be promoted over the other. But I think if you'd find the average person on the street, they don't know, as I don't know, isn't it a pity? Do I know that song? I listened yeah. to it, but I didn't, yeah, I didn't Okay, it. so yeah, so... Uh, we know, uh, most people know My Sweet Lord. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then the Beatles were known, though, for, due to a disagreement between EMI and John Lennon mm-hmm. about which side of the Beatles' We Can Work It Out and Day Tripper single should be considered the A-side and received the plugging, EMI settled for a double-side promotion campaign. And it was unique in Britain. And the Beatles did that with a couple others. I don't know for a fact if they created the double-A mm-hmm. side. Yeah, they could have. Yeah. And, you know, they, they, were, they were making so many hits, Jim, that, you know, surrounded by teams of people to see what's going to be a hit. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, with that Day Tripper and the other one you mentioned, I can see that. So now, with and with us knowing My Sweet Lord... And not the other song. Right. Uh, in Canada, Isn't It a Pity, which, by the way, when I went on YouTube and found the song, it, it, isn't it? It's a seven-minute song. Okay. It's a little long for that. Be- it reached num- and it reached number one in Canada as the preferred side. So they know that song. People would remember a seven-minute song. You know, if you're old enough yeah. uh, in 1970. Well, I'm going to have to look that up. Our listeners can yeah. do that, too. Isn't it a pity? So we got number one. Number one yeah. coming up. Uh, this is from the album One Dozen Roses by Smokey Robinson. And the song is Tears of a Clown. Mm-hmm. Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. Interesting. Uh, most of us know this song, and it's been covered as by other people as well. Mm-hmm. Talking about showing really showing vulnerability, emotional and relational vulnerability and humility. Mm -hmm. He's talking about how he he just says over and over again, different ways, really, how he's appearing to be happy, but really he's not. Yeah. Uh, He says, uh, I'm hurt and I want you to know, but for others, I put on a show. This was covered by the English Beat. I think you remember that from the 1980s. Uh And uh, a little faster... Mm-hmm. Even more, yes, even more fast and uh, yeah. and boppy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Tears of a Clown. And that's another Motown, mm-hmm. Smokey Robinson. Yeah, but interesting the way he just, just brings out uh, the honesty and the vulnerability that, you know, not everybody does t- these days. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that wraps up. The, yeah, it's been a great show and talking about vinyl and hope you've got some music to go back and listen to, go back and find. Get out there and uh, explore vinyl. Yeah. It's worth it. Until next time, we'll see you. Intro and exit music by the band 99%.
Today's show is produced and edited by Jim Thatcher. You can find Jim and Mike Talk on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and their host site, Podbean. The following songs were used on today's podcast with royalty-free permission. Lowest Face by Derek Craig, Life and Times by Chad Crouch, Hot Shot by Scott Holmes, and Dead Birds by Keith Doom and The Wrecking Crew.